This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hello. And with Rebecca Ford. Hi. Uh, in New York, we're in the swing of the New York Film Festival. Lots of exciting things going on around there. And then lots of exciting things and films being submitted and films premiering and short films suddenly being a hot topic on Netflix. Um, it's October. It's a fun time of year to talk about movies. So I think we're going to get to a lot of that. But first, while we were recording last week, news broke about the Golden Globes and we kind of just ran out of time to get into it. Um, but I did want to circle back to the Golden Globes announcing two new categories, um, much the way that the Oscars a few years ago uh, tried to throw out some new categories and made everybody furious. But because this is the Golden Globes, I think the outrage cycle is a little more muted. Um, but Rebecca, you wrote about it for us. Um, what are the Golden Globes up to now? I think we should do a flashback to 2018 when the Oscars <laughs> announced that they were going to do a popular film category. Um, we weren't, I wasn't on the podcast at the time, but I'm sure you guys talked about it. But I'm sure we were furious. Yeah. <laughs> so the Globes is going to try the same thing. Um, they've announced a, wait, let me get the title, Cinematic and Box Office Achievement in Motion Pictures category, which uh, basically is like a top box office popular film uh, category. But not just box office, crucially. Right. That's that's the special thing about this. So, of course, they want streamers to be included. So streamers can compete by amassing a digital... I can't wait for you to read this. <laughs> <laughs> a digital streaming viewership recognized by trusted industry sources is what the release said. So they don't say who the industry sources are. I don't know if it's self-reporting, like if... Netflix can just say how many viewers a movie got, or I don't know how else they would do that because, as we all know, streamers don't, you know, there is no reporting service for um, streamer viewership other than self-reporting. So that's a question. And then the other thing is if the film has not come out, it can still, you know, by the time um, submissions occur, it can still compete based on what it is projected to make at the box office, which we know projections are always accurate. So um, <laughs> I missed that part. Actually. This is so funny. I'm sorry. This is just so good. And same with us. If a streaming movie has not hit the streamer yet, they can project how many viewers are going to watch it. And I don't know who is reporting those numbers. So it feels a little half-baked, I guess, in, in the description. Um, I guess we'll see how that goes. But, you know, I mean, it's interesting, an interesting year to do that since we know a couple of our biggest box office releases are real contenders this year. So I don't know what this brings in, like 
Super Mario or... (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then the other category that they announced is a stand-up comic, um, which I guess is to include sort of those Netflix stand-up specials and things like that and have those, um, you know, well-known names uh, attend the show as well and give a funny acceptance speech. But um, Wait, it's for comic, not like a specific special? I think it is, yeah. Yeah, it's it's they have they qualify by having a special that's released in the okay. last year. I mean, so the the box office thing, I think we can all sort of guess why you would do this. Although again, in the year of Barbie and Oppenheimer, it feels like a little extra. You don't really need it. I cannot figure out what inspired the stand-up comedy thing. Is there a secret incentive here that I'm not seeing? Do they have like massive followings that are going to tune into this show that doesn't have a broadcast partner yet. So. <laughs> yeah, we should we should emphasize that. We don't know where we're going to watch the Globes yet this well, year. Well, the HFPA has a famous kink for being made fun of at their own award show. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe they're just hoping more comics will do that to them. I just think that they want as many stars in the room as possible, and they're not going to get the turnout they used to get before mm. COVID, before the scandal, uh, whichever you want to blame, just because... They don't have a broadcast partner as of yet. They are significantly diminished in terms of stature. And it's just the box office one's so funny. I'm sorry. This is so stupid. What's your favorite part? (laughs) My favorite part is the fact that as of a few weeks ago, two unions were on strike in large part because (laughs) they can't get the information from streamers that the Globes are saying just exists and will be used to determine which movies were just as successful as Barbie and Oppenheimer. I mean, that's insane. It doesn't make any sense. And it feels completely tone deaf to what the entire industry is talking about right now. But good luck to them. I would assume that they are trying to get a streamer to broadcast their show or maybe are in talks with a streamer and thus Mm -hmm. cannot exclude those films from this particular category. That's the only reason to explain it. But that could sort of – your theory could also explain the comic category because we know most of those are Netflix stand-ups. So if they're trying to woo a Netflix or something – although Netflix has its own show now with SAG. So – that maybe it doesn't make sense. But I also thought the comic thing could make sense if, I mean, if they're thinking the actor strike continues through January when their show is airing, maybe they thought it's a way to get mm-hmm. big names there. But I think we're all hopeful that won't be the case. But that could be a strategy as well to get more well-known names in the room. I'm trying to look up what streaming movies we're even going to be talking about here. Like, you know, assuming that these numbers can exist and be some kind of fair point of comparison, like... What are the Netflix are streaming? Like, is Red, Right, and Royal Blue going to be in there? Are we looking at, like, Extraction 2? I don't even know what the biggest <laughs> hit streaming movies of the year are. They're mostly shows. This is a na- uh, just a shameless ploy to get ghosted in at the Golden Globes, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Anna Darm is walking the red card. <laughs> that they movie do will like live on. Uh, that's a great question, Katie. We have no idea. And like David said, like, that is one of the major things strangling the industry is that we have no metric of success for half of the industry (laughs) you know and like the golden globes being like oh no no we got it we got it (laughs) we we figured it out we're gonna get we're gonna project those numbers is wild i guess they're trying to make concessions to streamers really what they want is like rebecca said like let's find a way to honor like super mario brothers at the golden globes which is a conflict of interest because wario is in the hfpa (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> not Waluigi, though. Wario not in the Super Mario Brothers movie. I will tell you that much. <laughs> That's true. So maybe it's not a They've lost interest. his vote. Yeah, Wario and Waluigi, they don't make the cut in the first one. But there's I'm always upset a about this. I'm sorry. You got to see the movie, David. Yeah. catch up. You do. It be nominated. Gold, yeah, for... <laughs> it's a serious contender for Golden Globes box office whatever the title is. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we should say, though, like the fact that we're talking about this, d- despite how ridiculous it seems, I think we're all rooting for the Golden Globes to exist in some real way. As ridiculous as they are, as insane as January is going to be, now that the Emmys are also at that time of year, like, I want this to be a comeback for them. And maybe this silly category, like, it's not going to be worse than The Flash entering the Speed Force at the actual Oscars, right? No. Um, I mean, also... The category is interesting because it would be really the first attempt to recognize streaming movies in that way. I mean, if the category is just as it probably should be like Barbie and Oppenheimer and then other like creatively successful blockbusters like John Wick 4, then I don't think it will be a very noisy category. But, you know, take your example of Extraction 2, I would say that was probably the most watched slash most well-received streaming movie of the year, maybe. And it was talked about for five days. Yeah. And there's just such a dramatic difference between a streaming movie hit, as we are told is it is a hit, and a box office hit. I mean, it's not comparable at all in terms of the way the movies land in the culture, the way they're experienced. It's just really very different. So, if they really make an earnest attempt to combine streaming and box office uh, in that category, I, I think it will yield some interesting conversations about what constitutes a hit in 2023. I mean, I'm looking at the Netflix top 10 right now of like the top films in English that are being watched right now. And it's like, Oy. in time, Wolf of Wall Street, uh, just like movies that have <laughs> oh, been out for nice. 10 years. I mean, yeah, I'm thrilled to see that. But like, that's the realistic metric, right? Of like, what's the most popular movie on Netflix? Something that a studio released 10 years ago. <laughs> that Andrew Nichol has forgotten he made. <laughs> <laughs> Justin Timberlake never forgets that. Yeah. Um, do we expect... I mean, the Globes will find a place to exist, right? Like, the SAG Awards streamed on Netflix's YouTube last year. They're going to be on actual Netflix this year. Like, the Globes will probably maybe not follow quite the same path, but something similar. And I imagine we'll find out about it in the next few weeks, right? I mean, they've hired real producers for this show, you know, with Glenn Weiss and Ricky Kirshner. So I would hope there is some sort of very close to being done deal if they're really moving forward with an anticipated, you know, broadcast show. Yeah, we'll see. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) 
Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Uh, to flash back to last week for a second, we got a listener question after our conversation about international feature that I thought was worth getting into. This category is like maybe the most complicated at the Oscars entirely, specifically because of the way the contenders are chosen. And um, we got an email from Yining basically saying... Uh, the conversation about Taste of Things over Anatomy of a Fall prompted me to email you to ask why, who exactly is selecting these submissions? Is it the government? What part of the government? Is it an industry group? Does it depend on the country? Um, I've wondered this for years, so I'd really appreciate an answer. Um, unfortunately, the answer is all of the above, basically. <laughs> uh, it really does uh, vastly depend on country. Um, and I wrote you back in you know, saying that when the Taste of Things was selected, France's selection committee was very public. It was, you know, filmmakers, names you would recognize. Um, but in China, for example, it's incredibly opaque. Um, David, I think you had a little bit more knowledge about how this whole thing works. Well, yeah, I mean, France is a really good example this year just because they've been unusually public about their issues <laughs> with the selection process over the last few years. I think there's some frustration over the fact that, you know, one of the best national film industries around the world has not been nominated for this Oscar since before COVID. And so they have talked about overhauling the selection committee, um, particularly after they selected Titan, which one can and then didn't even make the shortlist to reflect filmmaker taste a little bit more. So they added people like Alexander Desplat, Olivier Sayas, and uh, Patrick Washberger, who uh, was a, is a big uh, film executive figure here. He used to be co-chief of Lionsgate. And he produced uh, Coda. Yes, exactly. And he produced Coda and was uh, a key figure in that adaptation because it was originally a French film. So the whole idea here is to essentially have France better meet the Academy where it's at in order to more effectively contend for Oscars. Because, of course, like every branch, there's a particular taste, some might say a more, you know, normie mainstream taste in this branch uh, than what France has selected of late. You know, Saint-Omer was one of my favorite movies last year. It also did not make the cut uh, after they selected it. Um, but generally, the rules are that there has to be a selection committee that the country can, you know, devise at, at its discretion. Uh, they'll submit a shortlist and then they'll uh, nominate a movie to contend. And it really depends in terms of process and, and what, you know, what goes into that decision based on the country. I mean, this year, one of the biggest stories in international film has been the Agnieszka Holland film Green Border, um, which has really angered a lot of uh, politicians in Poland for its uh, portrait of the ongoing refugee crisis. And that is a system wherein it was not surprising that Poland did not select that film <laughs> to contend because the country was not pleased with what it was saying about it. Um, and they have a very conservative government. Right correct. Now. Correct. Yeah. Uh, whereas with France, as it exists now, it's a, such this, this, the selection committee is so film industry centric that it probably wouldn't be as impactful if if that movie were about France, say, and in, made in France. 
there is some concern when I was in Venice, people are kind of nervous about the future of that festival and also Italy's submissions to the Oscars. Um, Italy is actually the most winning country of all countries in this category, um, which I think is interesting. But um, because they have a very conservative government right now, and they're about to uh, appoint a new head of the Venice Film Festival, and that obviously has a huge sway on the whole Italian film industry. And like politics definitely come into play depending on the country. There was a movie that opened Venice that it was introduced by the kind of fascist minister of defense. Um, and people were kind of calling it like a Mussolini apologia or, or something like that. Oh, but, but there, and it's why like Alice Rohrwacher would never be the selection because that is too political mm-hmm. on the other side of things. And like, um, it gets messy quickly depending on the country. Brazil has had this issue with some, some past films from, uh, um, I believe it's Kleber Mendoca Filho, his films like Aquarius and stuff, um, where they won't select it because during the Bolsonaro government, like his films were viewed as, you know, sort of dissident or whatever. Um, so, yeah, it's again, it's messy. Yeah. At, um, at Vox in 2020, Alyssa Wilkinson wrote a pretty long piece called The Inter- Oscars International Film Category is Broken and broke down a lot of these stories about, you know, governments not submitting them. A whole different qualifying issue where sometimes a country will submit a film and the academy will determine it to be too much in English or not to be related to the you know, home country enough. I'm intrigued by the role of Perfect Days in that this year, which is a very uh, submitted by Japan. It's, you know, filmed in Japan with a Japanese cast, but the director of Ben Benders is not Japanese. I'm imagining it will get through. Otherwise, it wouldn't be getting such a big push. But uh, there's all kinds of little uh, technicalities. So um, that article is another good way to dive deep into this. So back to Lincoln Center, to Leonard Bernstein Place, I believe at 65th Street and Broadway, uh, which is right where Maestro had its uh, New York Film Festival premiere on Monday night. Richard, you were there. You had seen Maestro already um, in Venice, um, and then you kind of got to watch the home crowd in many ways take in the film. And we had talked earlier about how Maestro's New York Film Festival premiere could be a real um, turn in its awards prospects. Did it feel that way last night, Richard? Um, I did not go to the movie I went to the party afterward because I was kind of curious to take the temperature of that room and see what people were thinking. Um, someone who did go to the screening was Bradley Cooper. <laughs> um, he did not do the red what carpet. What a he twist. Did. What a twist. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. He what did, did he go think to... of the movie? <laughs> uh, he probably liked it. Um, didn't do the carpet. Didn't do Q&A after the screening. Uh, was not in the little director's box when they shine a light uh, at, as the movie ends on the, the filmmakers. Uh, he was just in the audience. Um, and I can't blame him. You know, this that's a big moment for that movie. And I, according to a tweet that I saw, again, <laughs> I think this was great. They got permission from SAG to be there, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he acted in, he acted in accordance with um, what SAG said he could do, which is basically just just be present yeah <laughs> which i don't know how you couldn't do that but <laughs> i know i mean good for him for like making sure it was okay yeah but, but I, yeah. I think it's yeah i think it's uh appropriate that he really went through all the channels i mean yes. what is that gonna do oh you went to air one that's kind of promoting something <laughs> like you're, you know stay at home um shelter in place actors um yeah so i mean i think that must have added a certain frisson of excitement uh in the room but and the party you know was lively people seemed super into it. I was really curious because as I've, you know, mentioned 1800 times on this podcast, like Venice was maybe not exactly the grand debut they were hoping for. Um, I think they seem to have made up for that in New York. Um, A lot of the kind of people who are in our little sphere of things um, had similar thoughts to the movie uh, to mine. 
which is like they're amazing. Carrie Mulligan and Bradley Cooper are amazing in it. It has great moments. It maybe doesn't fully hang together um, in total. But I was talking to a few people last night at the party. And I was like, yeah, you know, like Bradley's so good. He should win, but he's not going to. And like all these people were like, but wait, Richard, who's going to beat him? And I was like, <laughs> wait, no, it's going to be. And I was like, no, not him. Like I, I was kind of running through the list and it was like, maybe he is just going to win this. And and if that was one of the big, actually kind of the most spoken sentiment um, that I heard at the party last night was that Cooper is like front runner, front runner, front runner. That's a good night for that movie. Yeah. Yeah. I spoke to a few people who were there uh, and I, I think that consensus is becoming pretty clear that, you know, you know, the cliche, they are better than the movie. Um, but that does seem to be the overall sentiment, which can work for and against it in an awards race. I mean, the movie is so beautifully done and, and so intricate that I, I feel like there are a lot of parts of the Academy and awards season that would go for that movie, but it does seem like the love for it is pretty squarely focused right now on the performances which can be limiting even for those campaigns. Um, so we have to see how how that develops. But they are both so good. Um, I'm really curious about if the marketing, to your point, Richard, does start hinging a little bit more on Bradley Cooper's performance because it's been so much about his direction and Carrie Mulligan's performance. I think Carrie Mulligan is brilliant in the movie, but it did feel like there was almost a willingness to not have him be the narrative coming out of Venice. And, you know, coming into New York, he was on both of the big posters there. And it, it did seem like there was a more more of an awareness or a, a priming for him to be a big story coming out of that premiere. And I think that seems to have happened. Yeah. I mean, if he wins for Best Actor, he's also winning for Directing and Writing. You know, mm-hmm. like it, it's, it's a combined award in a way, which is fine. That's, you know, that happens. But um, I think he's maybe the movie's best hope um for like a you know quote unquote top five award you think he has a better chance than carrie mulligan even though she seems to be like right there alongside him in terms of acclaim yeah i mean i think if i was being like critical of the whole campaign or how the movie's kind of packaged it's like you know she's credited first and i i think that's a nice deference to a great performance from cooper but like it's not about her you know, I mean, it is and it isn't like she's not the maestro of the title, you know, and uh, a lot of time is spent later in the film on her character uh, in a particular way that people seem to be taking increasing issue with. Um, I won't want to spoil anything, but but like at the end of the day, like it is about Leonard Bernstein's complicated domestic life and a little bit about his glorious professional life. Um, and I just don't see how after, you know, through the next many months, how they maintain Carrie Mulligan and her Felicia Montalegre as the center of that film. She's just, it's not really what, how the movie's built. And Mm. it's unfortunately not what people are kind of going to it to see. They're going to see a Lenny Bernstein movie and um, Bradley Cooper delivers that and he's amazing in the role. So I just feel like it's going to naturally happen that he becomes uh, the lead, you know, figure of that movie's campaign. I also wonder, um, you know, I think the directing is really, really strong in this film, but I do think it's very possible he won't make that uh, category. And I think that will probably help him in in the acting group and and maybe Best Picture, because some people will see that as a snub. But I mean, the directing category is extremely stacked this year. So I I do see that he could possibly be left off. But I don't know, maybe he'll finally get to talk if the SAG strike ends and, and that could help his campaign as well. But 
uh, I could see that happening. Variety ran the argument last week that Carrie Mulligan should run in supporting, which I don't uh, necessarily agree with, but I think it speaks to the sentiment that you're referring to, Richard, which is that there is there are a lot of people coming out of that movie being like, well, you know, she's not really in the first half that much. And the shape of the movie is is Leonard Bernstein, Bradley Cooper, and maybe she could do that. And it's kind of funny because she definitely should not have run in supporting last year for She Said, and I don't think that was received very well. Mm. Uh, and she's been positioned so clearly as a lead going into this season for Maestro. It's almost the opposite of Lily Gladstone in a way where there's an issue of expectations here. You know, Lily Gladstone was assumed to go supporting and... I think that people really embraced the move to lead in part because of, you know, what it said about the movie, the way they want to talk about the movie. With this one, it's the way they introduced Maestro, and that hasn't quite necessarily held up to the actual content of the film. And and I wonder if it's going to hurt her, because I, I really think she gives an outstanding performance, um, but she's not as much of a focus. If Carrie Mulligan ran supporting... She would absolutely be the first person to run in that category who's first build in their film, right? <laughs> hmm. Like, no, I don't, no, they, there, there have been a that? few. There really? have been a few. Um, I have to Listeners, think about Listeners, write in and let they're help absolutely, us remember. No, I, I have a, I have a thing. Let me, let me find it. Well, okay, I, he's got a Google Doc. Guy. Wait, what is the spreadsheet <laughs> that you're about to pull out? Um, I'll let David research. And so I was thinking about Best Actor again and the idea that, like, you know, if my show isn't, like, an odds-on Best Picture favorite, like, does that hurt the idea that Bradley Cooper could win Best Actor? But, like, it's been since John Dujardin was the last person to win Best Actor for a film that won Best Picture. Like, more often than not, they don't line up. It's often for, you know, strong contenders like Lincoln or Bohemian Rhapsody, God help us. Um, But I don't see why, like the maestro would be less of a strong horse to ride than the whale. You know, like I think the performance itself can really stand out regardless of how the the fate of the film pans out. Totally. I agree. I Um, also was wondering, like, you know, Bradley Cooper, you know, making an appearance at the premiere, you know, not saying anything, just being in the audience um, and not being at Venice. And, you know, like, is there kind of a mystique that builds around that that could actually help him? Hmm. You know, like, oh, he's just like the, the the maestro of this film and he's just been quiet and sort of laying low. I mean, yes, because he has to, but also because, like, I don't know, he's letting the work speak for itself and we should sort of honor this, you know, unknowable artist. I don't know. I, I was kind of thinking that, like, maybe this weirdly is an accidental campaign benefit. Um, that uh, he's just kind of this like shadowy figure behind the scenes and on camera, but he hasn't been able to sort of speak for the movie. And I don't know, maybe that helps in a strange way. <laughs> it's going to be a huge thing for so many movies, though. I mean, I really think we really don't know how this is going to impact a lot of these campaigns, but this one the most, just because there's been no one who's been able to talk about it. Yeah, the Bernstein children have really stepped up. God bless them. I do have my examples. Oh, good. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> there, there have been a few. I mean, Meryl Streep uh, was first billed for Into the Woods, and she was uh, okay. nominated yeah. for that. And uh, Jeff Bridges was first billed for Hell or High Water, and he was nominated in supporting for that. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I was also, I mean, I guess there's no way Viola Davis was first billed for Fences because that would be Denzel Washington. But I guess, you know, that's kind of a similar example of like. That is a very similar example. Yeah. Actually. <laughs> like she might not have been first billed, but she she is the, the core of that movie as much as he is. But it worked out. And obviously, Melissa Leo first billed for The Fighter. Yeah. 
choose Mark Rylance's either. first build for Bridge of Spies. You know. <laughs> he played the bridge. <laughs> yeah. um, while we're talking about New York Film Festival and actress campaigns, I feel like we should talk about May-December, um, mm. which mm. I think we are all, you know, again, you guys have all seen it. I have not yet, but um, a lot more people have gotten to see it. And it seems like it's really popping in a way that I think we were all rooting for it in many ways. Yeah, it was the opening night film at New York Film Festival, which then has the attendant uh, after party at Tavern on the Green that is called by some Film Prom because it's kind of the kickoff to the fall season. A lot of people go. I was You were the cool kid who was like doing other stuff that night, right? Yeah, I was yeah, I was cool in my, on my parents' couch in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, <laughs> but um it, crazy rain happened that day in New York and there was flooding and I was kind of watching from afar being like, "Oh, too bad their little party's going to get canceled because <laughs> I couldn't go and I was jealous." Um, and it didn't get canceled and apparently it was like a crazy turnout and everyone had a great time and um everyone seemed I mean, not everyone, everyone, but like that movie went over very well. I think it was a great choice for opening film because it is artful. I mean, it's a Todd Haynes film, you know, it, it has its its prestige dimensions, but it's also really entertaining with juicy performances and a really um, kind of risque subject matter. And I, yeah, I think it was a really good way to both launch the festival and kind of relaunch that movie uh, post-cam. It does feel like I can like see Charles Melton's name rising up the ranks in the prediction lists because I think a lot of people yeah. were really blown away by what he was able to do in that movie and you know he, he's with Julian Moore and Natalie Portman and he is just like delivering just as strong of a performance and has a very complicated role so I'm really excited to see that people are appreciating it. I think some people who weren't at Cannes I think were a bit like well I'll believe it when I see it about right. him right. you know the Riverdale yeah. guy yeah. Yeah. yeah and then they're like that's probably just like France fever like people are being nuts you know uh, and then th- then I think th- at New York they were like oh actually yeah <laughs> like he really does uh, deliver in a way that um, must have been very daunting for him you know <laughs> like yeah. hey come do this like revered auteurs movie with these two incredible Oscar winning actors um, and he, he he pulled it off and uh, yeah I think he's definitely now um, in the mix I still have my doubts about that movie's general Oscar chances because the Academy is a little chilly toward Todd Haynes and the, I don't know, it, it's a, maybe a, I honestly, I think the movie's maybe a little too queer. It's not about queer people, but like there is a queer sensibility behind the camera and maybe the Academy won't really embrace that, but I don't know, like so far that movie um, seems pretty undented in, in its March, you know, towards nominations. I think it's benefited from being, very entertaining and and discomforting. Like it it does take you on such a ride. I mean, this is maybe my favorite movie of the year, so I'm I'm showing myself a little bit, but I was really happy to see the reactions and to see that it played. Um and to just see that it's 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 not a minor Todd Haynes movie, which I think was part of the narrative that came out of Cannes. I mean, it's to me the first thing from it and it's so well made and so thoughtfully done and the performances are so so strong that I, I do feel like it has a chance to to start cracking through um, just as a movie that gets people thinking. And and he makes movies that it does have that sensibility, absolutely. But I, I think this one has a little bit more of a, for lack of a better way of putting it, an in-your-face quality that actually might work to his benefit. Yeah. Apparently, there was a Q&A after the press screening of the movie, I think, or uh, some other screening at New York Film Festival, and Todd Haynes was there, and he was like, oh, yeah, you know, we shot it in 23 days, it was so much fun, and it made it sound like kind of one of those, like, Steven Soderbergh, like, I don't know, I just made a movie with some friends over the last week, you know? (laughs) And I'm like, 
I get that he wants to kind of, that Haynes wants to be true to what the experience of making it was, but like, maybe let's talk about this in more reverent tones, you know, like, <laughs> like let's uh, kind of, you know, this was a real passion project that we, you know, we really slaved over, you know, because um, I, I don't know, maybe the, I wonder if the Academy cares about that, but I think those narratives of like how hard yeah. people work, yep. like that, that comes into play. Um, I mean, that's why Leonardo DiCaprio has an Oscar, you know, yes. um, and just saying, oh, it was three weeks and we had a blast in Savannah. <laughs> like, I don't know if that's we enough. Need, we need Natalie Portman to start talking about her possession. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and the Academy yeah. has proven all too willing to disrespect Todd Haynes. So, like, I mean, not that he needs to play their game, but like, come on, let's 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 help get him in their crosshairs. Yeah, Richard, I think what you're saying is true, because I, I've talked to a couple older Academy members in the past week or so who did, who said they did not like this film. And I had a hard time being like, what are you talking about? <laughs> because, but I, and, and a lot of them said, oh, I don't really like his films. And I'm like, how can you just, I don't know. So I, I, I do think that's a real hurdle. You for, hear it. Yeah, you yeah. hear it. It's the kind of thing of like, you know, like when you're in space and coming back to Earth, you have to enter the atmosphere at the right angle or else you bounce off, you know, whatever. And I think that this is that kind of movie where it's like you have to be sort of angled just the right way mm. um, to get into it. And I think a lot of the Academy that, you know, has exhibited appalling taste in recent years at times <laughs> and also really good taste, you know. It's just mm -hmm. hard to say, like, which side of it will win out when it comes to this movie. And I worry a little bit that it's just a bit too left of center um, in, a in a particular kind of way for the Academy to embrace. I mean, then again, we're also predicting big things for poor things, and I think that's a similarly, um, you know, pointy movie that, that not everyone will, will be able to embrace. Yeah, I mean, left of center has a lot uh, better chances now that the Academy is yeah. more uh, diverse and young and etc. So I, I, I'm still hopeful for it, but I, I, I agree there there is some some issue with a Haynes film that remains. Yeah, uh, we should take uh, David. You, you can take this opportunity to plug your piece on Christine Vachon that ran last week. Uh, she's the producer of May December as well as Past Lives, and is kind of. We hope queued up for a ridiculously overdue Oscar nomination. Um, God, she's uh, that piece made me love her even more than I already did from her filmography. The the most interesting experience of of the post publishing period with this piece was the amount of industry people I heard from who expressed not just shock but outright denial that Christine Vachon <laughs> has never been nominated for an Oscar. I mean, I, I think <laughs> her list of credits is so unbelievable and especially for a New York indie film producer, um, queer indie film producer, that it, it seems unreal. But it is it is indeed the case that, in large part, because of Todd Haynes's, you know, inability to get a nomination for Carol or Far From Heaven in Best Picture, as he should have and as she should have, um, she has not been able to crack that five or nine or ten or whatever it's been over her career. Um, but this does feel like the year that should change. You know, Past Lives is probably in a slightly better position to get a nomination. But I think both are in the conversation right now and and really prime examples on the on opposite ends, right? One with a filmmaker she's worked with for decades, one with a first-time filmmaker um, of her unique prowess uh, in this industry. And she is deserving of that recognition. Yeah, she's a fascinating figure and um, a really, if you ever get the chance, a really interesting person to talk to. Yeah. Um, she's just been around from the early, the 90s indie boom through all of the industry changes and just plugging away project to project. You know, um, some of them miss, some of them hit. Like, she's having, having a great year this year. 
um, just a really interesting figure who is representative of what American film has been for 30 years. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's wild that the Academy, which is also supposed to be doing that same kind of recognition, (laughs) hasn't brought her to the party yet, you know, Um, because there are definitely films in her, in her, on her resume that are worthy of that attention. And maybe this is the year. She has two shots, which is pretty more than a lot of people have. So, yeah. And more than she's had in the past, I think. It's Mm -hmm. usually been one or none. Yeah. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, we're talking about all these movies that aren't quite out in the world yet, though they'll be coming soon. But there is one that you can watch now because Netflix has released Fair Play, which we talked about uh, back at Sundance, I think, but maybe uh, other points before. Um, David, you did a first look piece on it. It's in theaters. It will be on Netflix as a Friday of this week. Um, and I, you know, I watched it at home via the Sundance digital platform. I'm sure it's a great theatrical experience, but I think it's a, probably a good one to catch up with at home, especially if it's been flying a little bit under the radar for you. I do worry about it getting a little bit swallowed up by Netflix projects like Maestro and May December, which we just talked about. Um, but I think we're all uh, fans of this movie on some level. And I wanted to just um, give it a little platform. Why should people watch it? I think every straight couple should watch it. <laughs> it is a it's great a couple's Netflix movie. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. have a nice, normal conversation afterward. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, look, obviously, you know, we I want a big theatrical life for every movie, you know, that, that I think deserves it. But um, and it's I, I, I would love for this to be a Saturday night date night at the theater movie. Um, but I think it will play well at home, like you said, Katie. And um, it's. Yes, it's Sundancey, and we're, we're talking about in this podcast in terms of awards, maybe, but like it is at root just a really entertaining, mm-hmm. you know, thriller, basically drama, you know, relationship drama thriller um, that is sharp and well written and well acted and um, does in the corniest of ways like keep you guessing until the end. Like it's not a twisty movie exactly, but you kind of don't know where it's going to go. You don't know what scene is going to follow whatever scene you're watching. And I think that's a testament to. Uh, really thoughtful writing and direction um, from a first-time filmmaker. I mean, I I will say this for Netflix too. You know, they bought the movie out of out of Sundance, and it did seem like a, a slam dunk for them. There's been a lot of chatter over the past month, as basically every notable Toronto movie has gone their way. Most recently, our beloved His Three Daughters, yeah. Um, and and some questions about what those rollouts are going to look like. Um, for this movie, regardless of what happens when it goes on Netflix, and again, it is a great streaming movie. It is a great straight straight couple movie, to be highly specific. Um, Netflix has really been getting it out there uh, for the industry and, and giving it a proper campaign and a proper mounting here in LA. Um, it's 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 being talked about. It's it's well timed, I think, as an early September, you know, into October release that kind of precedes the flood of big contenders. Uh, Chloe DeMont is a first-time feature writer-director, really getting out there, getting to meet voters. And and that's a, a special thing uh, for a movie that, you know, could have been a strictly commercial play, could have been in the hands of another streamer, even less of a, of a, of a have had even less of a rollout. So 
it's been nice to see, from my vantage point at least, that the movie has really been a presence uh, over the last few weeks since its Toronto premiere uh, and should hopefully find a lot of eyeballs this weekend. It does feel like we might wind up talking about it the most in the original screenplay category. Um, But unfortunately for everyone in the original screenplay category, it's insanely stacked, um, including another New York-based first-time writer-director in Celine Song of Past Lives. Um, So it's a tough road, but I would like to keep talking about it. I like the idea of, like, having fair play in the mix against Maestro or the holdovers. Um, It feels like a good mix if we can really keep talking about it. I think especially now that the director can get out there and talk about writing it, um, mm-hmm. that will help her case. And and like David said, they've been doing a lot of, you know, the festival. They're doing some of the local festivals. They're doing a lot of promotion for it in that space. So, I, I would, yeah, I think it's a really strong script. So hopefully she remains in that conversation. I also think anyone who saw Alden Ehrenreich in Oppenheimer and was like, I'm so glad to see him again. Um, watch Fair Play. I think yeah. he, he you might not be as happy to see. He's not like the morally righteous character like he is in Oppenheimer, <laughs> but uh, it's a it's another really great performance from him this year. And what he does so shrewdly in the movie and, you know, what he does, you know, in conjunction with the filmmaker is like, he's so innately charming. He's very handsome, but he has a kind of rakish... I mean, I get why he was cast as a young Han Solo. We'll just say it. Mm-hmm. I think that mm-hmm. movie is maligned on quite, somewhat unfairly. Is He turns that charm into something menacing mm-hmm. uh, it, it, as the movie goes. And I think that's so... Um, that can be hard to do for someone who is kind of in this, like, leading man, you know, uh, good guy package. He's really effectively employed in the movie. And um, it's a kind of reintroduction to him in in a way that uh, I think he's been overdue for. Well, talking about Alden Ehrenreich uh, makes me think of his scene in Hail Caesar, which I think I have playing (laughs) on a loop in my head. I don't know if you all do too as well. Um, So that leads me to Ray Fiennes and the Wes Anderson shorts that are also on Netflix. There we go. (laughs) You did it. Look at that transition. Um, Wes Anderson has released four short films on Netflix, which is, I, I don't think anyone's ever done anything like this before. It's a pretty unique rollout. There was one a day starting with the wonderful story, life, world of Henry Sugar. What is it? <laughs> world. <laughs> Some Wessie Dolly title. Um, so there's there's four of them. Uh, they're the Henry Sugar shorts, I guess, for lack of a better word. But um, they're all very different and have kind of a um, a company of players, including Ray Fiennes, Benedict Cumberbatch, Jeff Patel, Ben Kingsley, et cetera, et cetera. I've still only seen three of the four. I've missed the last one, which, David, you've told me is pretty good. Um, but I think yes. the Henry Sugar one with Benedict Cumberbatch, I believe, is going to be the one we'll see in the best um, live action short race. This is going to be really interesting and starry and I think even more reason for people to catch up with these on Netflix. This this may be the hack that people who have been trying to hack the shorts race for a few years now have been waiting for. I, I think that this movie has the goods to go all the way. And last year, I think uh, our colleague Natalie Jarvie wrote a piece about all of the, you know, A-list musicians and celebrities trying to get into this field and how you actually have to make <laughs> a good, interesting movie to properly contend there, which some forget about. Um, but this one is like a great Wes Anderson movie that's a little more bite-sized, that makes it more aggressively paced, let's say. Um, and I think, yeah, I think it's really, really well positioned. It is the one that Netflix has put all there might behind. <laughs> you might not know that there are three other shorts on Netflix, in hmm. fact, because it's been so focused on that one. Um, but yeah, I think it will do very well. But I would definitely encourage people to watch the fourth and last one, Poison. It's maybe my favorite. I think it's so taut and and well acted and darkly funny. Uh, I really enjoyed it. 
this is how on top of things I am. I was on the train coming home from Providence uh, the other day, and the woman sitting across the aisle from me was watching Henry Sugar on her iPad. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. You know, I guess that's, that makes sense. Just 40 minutes, no commitment. And then I kind of turned back to my work and then, you know, half an hour later, looked back and she was watching something with Rupert Friend and it looked kind of stylized. And I was like, what's that? I had no idea the other ones had been released. I thought it was just the, the main one that it was at Venice, you know. So it is an interesting strategy to kind of package them, but also keep them separate and, and whatnot. But um, yeah, I mean, how does that not how is that not just already won the short Oscar? I, well, I don't know. Well, Pedro Almodovar made one. I don't know if you heard about that one, too. So it's a yeah. very auteur-heavy shorts race already. I know. And I shouldn't because, you know, I live with Manor Rios, and so I don't want him to <laughs> overhear me saying his movie's not going to win an Oscar. But If we don't invite the Spanish hogs to the Oscars, what are we doing here? <laughs> I mean, they were such a hit at Cannes. Just re- re- put them back together again. I know. Everyone will care. They're like the everything everywhere all at once cast of this year. They just travel us back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, no, that's true. I mean, it is kind of a it's a it's an interesting year for shorts in that way because there are these two big, starry uh, sort of curios from you know feature filmmakers. I um I didn't so I said I'd only seen three of the four and I didn't love the Rupert Friend one, but I thought he was wonderful in it. Like the performances in these shorts are captivating in a way I don't think we always talk about Wes Anderson movie performances. Um, you know, I don't like his track record of getting uh, actors Oscar nominations is really spotty. But in these little bite sized films, you're just watching these actors dealing with the the constraints of the format where they're changing scenery behind them and putting on and off wigs and all this crazy stuff. Um, but watching them do that and then build characters in the midst of all that like heavy stylization is really fascinating. So any of these actors that you kind of wanted to see them take on a challenge like this, it's really worth watching. Yeah. Some actors just really connect with that style mm-hmm. and some don't, you know, like it's like watching, you know, Jeffrey Wright in the couple Wes Anderson movies he's done recently. Yeah. And it's like, oh, he's perfect for mm-hmm. this. Like he totally gets it. And like Rupert Friend, I haven't seen that one yet. But like, I always I just think of him as like the brooding spy on uh, Homeland, you know, <laughs> and yeah. so I'm very curious to see what he's doing in a sort of more whimsical uh, vein um, but he seems like a good match for it, I suppose. But yeah, that that is true, Katie. Like, w- just actors really giving it their all, being like, "I'm in a Wes Anderson movie. Oh my god! Like, mm-hmm. I have to like nail this." And um, watching them succeed is always uh, fun. I thought of Dev Patel this time. Oh, I mean, I but oh, especially yeah. in the last one, he's he's a total delight. Um, and I think in general, you can it does it's not hard to see that his energy fits Wes's very well. Yeah, I kind of had that feeling about all of them, and I don't know that I automatically would have been like Benedict Cumberbatch in a Wes Anderson movie. That makes perfect sense. But um, in the Henry Sugar one, he's really terrific. And like you said, Richard, it's low commitment. Like you can knock out a full new Wes Anderson movie in chunks uh, and not have to feel bad about it, which is. <laughs> often what happens to me if I have to watch a movie in pieces and I feel guilty. So, You didn't watch The Irishman as a miniseries? I think <laughs> I might have actually watched The Irishman in one go. <laughs> but it, like, it took heroic like effort to schedule my life around it. So, uh, And then that will bring us to Killers of the Flower Moon in a few weeks. So stay tuned for lengthy <laughs> movie watching. That does it for this week's show. We will be back next week. Find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com, on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider, and on our own. I am on Twitter at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David. David Canfield 97. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best impression of Jane Fonda giving out the Best Picture Oscar next year goes to Rebecca Ford. Super Mario.
I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. From PRX.